Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-step shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and he and I are recording this show on Saturday, October 10th, 2020. We've obviously got a lot of animation news to share this week, but before Drew and I do that, we'd like to remind you that the news portion of Fine Tuning is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of this podcast. For a worry-free travel experience, please book online at storybookdestinations.com. So, (laughs) very, very busy news week animation-wise, Drew. Everything wise, Jim. This was, I, I'm exhausted. Let me tell you, this was a this was a crazy week. We had a lot of stuff, and we had you know the haunting of Bly Manor just premiered on Friday. I got a lot of stuff pertaining to that. Oh, I mean, okay. uh, yeah. Have you have you guys started watching that yet? Not yet. Okay. What would you say is the biggest story this week? Is it? I mean, it was it. You were actually saying on our last show in regard to Soul to kind of watch this space. So yes. This wasn't really a surprise for you, right? Or? It, it wasn't a huge surprise, but I think the Christmas Day element was interesting. And then also the fact that it will just be on Disney Plus. It will not be a premium add-on like Mulan. Because uh, I, I had sort of theorized that it was going to go the more broadly um, VOD route. Mm-hmm. So I thought mm-hmm. that it was going to go... That you were going to be able to order it on TV on demand or that you were going to get it from Voodoo or Movies Anywhere or something like mm-hmm. that beforehand. And then, you know, I thought by Easter it would be on Disney+. Plus, But instead, mm-hmm. nope, it's just going directly to Disney+, Plus, free for every subscriber, which is mm-hmm. a huge – I mean, that's a huge win to get a AAA theatrical title on your service for free on Christmas Day. It's pretty awesome, I think. Totally, totally. And in fact, in the UK, they tend to front load all of the television there with classic Disney animated stuff. In fact, remember a lot of folks talking about how that's when they first saw Song of the South, when it would play on Christmas Day in the UK. Ah, yes. Have your your Christmas pudding and a little... Fried Southern racism, Jim. Everyone, <laughs> it's something for everyone on Christmas Day. Uh, but, but again, I can picture literally billions of people sitting down on Christmas Day to watch this with the family. So I yeah. still do feel kind of bad for the folks at Pixar because, again, you described a lot of the stuff that you got to see when you were up there working on your Art of Onward book right. about you know the spectacular design for soul and and some of this stuff really should be seen on the biggest possible screen oh yeah and it's also pete doctor's first widescreen movie the aspect ratio is 235 and they're using simulated anamorphic lenses so it actually it looks more like a movie than any of his other movies because his other movies were much taller and Mm. sort of the the frame was much fatter so it's a shame. It's uh, and it's also a shame because it's the first African American lead of a Pixar movie, and it's going directly mm. to video. Mm. I mean, I feel like that the sort of cultural implications of that would would have been pretty powerful had it gone theatrical. But yeah. you know, well, you know, that here's hoping that when we get on the other side of this, which based on what they, you know, the Broadway announcement earlier this week about they push when theaters will potentially open on Broadway again to May of next year. Yeah. I do hope that at some point in the future, I can go back to a movie theater and actually see Soul the way it was intended to be seen on the widest possible screen. Yeah, I have a, I have a, a hope that that will be the case. And if you want to get a, a better impression of what Soul will bring, I have two 
giant pieces up on Collider right now. I don't know if you looked at those yet, Jim, uh, where I run down the first 40 minutes that I saw and also have an interview with Pete Doctor, Kemp Powers, and Dana Mur- Murray, who uh, you know are the creative team behind this movie. So Holy cow. Well, I'll head there as soon as we finish today, and folks, you should do the same. Okay. It's sort of like you didn't have another animated-related assignment this week, because you also got to see Over the Moon, right? Yeah, I've seen Over the Moon twice now, and I've, I have reviewed it, and I did the press day for it, mm-hmm. and uh, so I got to talk to your old buddy, Glenn Keane, and he uh-huh. is just uh, awesome. I tried to kind of dig some Rapunzel stuff out of him, and he shot me down. Pretty succinctly, but that's okay. <laughs> All right, yeah, yeah. That that one would have would have been tough. And, yeah. and Glenn's enough of an pro, get it to the effect of I am here to promote this project, not talk about that movie. But come see me later. Yes, yes. So, what do we think? Of, I, I really of, liked of it. I liked it a okay. lot. I think you're gonna like it a lot too. I know you were a little sort of um, hesitant about the crazy colors and everything mm-hmm. of the moon people, but I think you're going to like it. And the, the big musical number, which is done by Philippa Sue, who, mm-hmm. you know, is from Hamilton, your favorite movie of mm-hmm. the year. I think you've watched that more times than you've talked to Alice <laughs> on the phone this year. But um, <laughs> she she's just amazing as the moon goddess. And it's like this big kind of K-pop musical number mm-hmm. that is just to die for. But Glenn is credited as the character designer as well. Mm-hmm. And you can really see that kind of expressiveness um, in every character. But what I said in my review is that when the movie kind of leans back on the old Disney tropes, like mm-hmm. both of the main characters have an animal sidekick, Jim. Would you mm-hmm. would you recognize that? And also, like some of the songs are not super memorable. So you know, it just felt like he was getting back into the groove in a way that maybe was not to the benefit of the movie. But it is a visually stunning movie. It's got a gorgeous sound design by my buddy Gary Rydstrom. Mm -hmm. It's really, really amazing. So I think you're going to love it. Okay. Well, and again, that that officially becomes available on September 23rd. Is that right? October 23rd. Jim, we we blew past September. (laughs) You have. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, as long as we're talking about Netflix, uh, can you talk a little bit about Lost Dolly, the the new Pete Ramsey, Shannon Tindall project? Or? Yeah, I mean, we are. I, I I'm speaking for you now, Jim, and saying that we are both Pete Ram- Ramsey and Shannon Tindall super fans. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, talk about yeah. people that you should definitely follow on on Twitter. They're both mm-hmm. amazing and have so much amazing stuff to share. But it's a new project based on another story by William Joyce. And we, really? Yes. Oh, so, okay. yeah. you know, we, Peter, Peter has, you know, a great track record with this, having worked on Rise of the Guardians, which I think you and I both adore. And does well, not- it gets, one of the reasons I love this time of year is that, well, after Freeform stops its 24-7 screenings of Hocus Pocus <laughs> during its 31 days of Halloween, then uh, Rise of the Guardians goes into heavy rotation. And I'm a happy guy. Yeah, so. it's a wonderful movie. But he, it's a six-part Netflix series, and Peter's mm-hmm. directing all six parts. And mm-hmm. our friends at Industrial Light and Magic are providing the animation, which is really cool. Um, wow. And also shows you how kind of unmoored ILM still is, even though it's now owned by Disney, that mm-hmm. they're doing animation for a, a Netflix project. But yeah. it sounds very cool. It's sort of about a lost toy, it looks like. Um, mm-hmm. And, yeah, I cannot wait to see it. I mean... 
anything those two do, I'm I'm in for. And then you combine that with William Joyce and ILM, oh, yeah, and yeah. yeah, it's must see stuff. Wow, I mean, no, 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 that that that's quite the Venn diagram they've got there. So yeah, uh, do we have? Oh, this is 2021, though, right? Or... At, at the earliest. I mean, the thing about Netflix, I think that you and I talk about this a lot, mm-hmm. is that they announce something and then you don't hear about it for about five years. And then it comes back, <laughs> you know. And it's like, oh, remember that? that we actually had, you know, Alex Hirsch employed for the last 10 years. And here's finally <laughs> something that he's doing or whatever it is. So You did send me notice of this yesterday. Uh, speaking of things that were initially on our radar, let's talk about the Brenda Chapman project. The oh, trailer yeah. that just, just dropped yesterday. Yeah, it's her live action film. I mean, we have not heard anything. I think it was at maybe it was at Sundance earlier this year, which sounds like. Uh, you know, a world away from where we are right now, but it's called Come Away mm-hmm. and it's on demand and in, I guess, some theaters on November 13th. This is the one that stars David Oleyowo. I always screw up his name. Mm-hmm. And Angelina Jolie, where it's like a combination of Peter Pan and Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. yeah. It sounds fascinating. This is the the one that was produced by uh, her and Kevin Lima's company. Mm-hmm. Um so, I mean, I'm dying to see it. I'm glad it's finally coming out, but... Yeah, yeah. But just the premise of that Alice and Peter were, were siblings and the very different paths they took in, in the worlds of fantasy. And it's just sort of like, that's a killer idea. And then it's like, here we are like a year plus later. and Oh, oh, there's an actual film. And oh, it's finally showing up. So yeah. go figure. Yeah, I don't know where I don't know where it's going to be showing at drive-in. I guess I don't I'm I'm not sure what's going to be open on November 13th. But yeah. Can you tell folks about where you were last night? Yeah, I was at um, the Santa Monica airport, which I haven't mm-hmm. been to since the incredibly loud junket for Dunkirk a few years ago, where I was trying to ask Christopher Nolan questions as... You know, prop planes <laughs> were taking off in the background. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> but they did um, all this week and into next week, uh, Disney Plus kind of took over this space mm-hmm. and they're doing drive-in showings of things. They, they premiered the right stuff earlier mm-hmm. this week, which is absolutely fabulous, Jim. I have to tell you, you have to watch it. It's great. It's really, really great. It's sort of Disney Plus's Mad Men. Wow, really? Yeah. I mean, I loved the Phil Kaufman film back yeah. in the, the 80s, and that's a kind of a high bar. Yeah, to... it's very different, but I think you're going to love it. And it really okay. is a much more adult program than you would expect on Disney Plus, but all the actors are fabulous and it's really, really well done. I think you're going to get a kick out of it. But anyway, yeah, they've they've done all these screenings all week and then last night they did Hocus Pocus Mm -hmm. um, and you would love that they showed uh, a trick or treat beforehand, the Uh, uh, great short. Yes, Witch Hazel. Okay. And they showed an episode of Treehouse, uh, one of the Treehouse of Horrors. So oh. it was actually a very fun Halloween-themed night because mm-hmm. usually L.A. is going Halloween crazy right now and we are all mm-hmm. just stuck inside, you know, watching Night of the Living Dead for the hundredth time. So it was nice to get out and do something. And uh, we had a blast. Nova came. She she loved it, you know. Oh. So. <laughs> okay. By the way, uh, did you get to see the, the most recent DuckTales or the Halloween-themed episode? That was so cute where the monsters were pretending to be different monsters. Yeah, well, but but did you catch that the house they went to was actually the Hazel house, as in... Oh, was it? Yeah, that they literally went to Witch Hazel's house. And Ugh. you've probably seen 
the art that's been floating around on Twitter about the episode that's coming up with Darkwing? Uh, yes, I have, Jim. The two-parter. Uh, uh, that looks amazing. Cannot yeah. wait. Finally, Goslin comes on the stage. This yes. is so. Well, I was doing some research on something else this week, and I watched uh, a little 80s gym called DTV Halloween Hits or whatever that special was. And oh. June, June Foray <laughs> came back and recorded new dialogue as Witch Hazel saying stuff like, let's listen to Thriller or whatever she says. <laughs> And it is, uh, it's very, the whole thing's on YouTube, so I, I encourage people to check that oh, out. Oh, well, uh, speaking of pseudo-Halloween-related stuff that we're now jumping ahead to 2021, but you, did you see the Adams Family teaser? Yeah, I mean, where, where did this movie come from? I cannot believe it's already coming out next year. When it did as well as it did last year, we knew this was coming, but I, I have to admit, kind of shocked that wow, they really are this far along and we are going to see it next year if we can ever get back into theaters. Right. But yeah, I mean, I thought it was cute. Did you like the first one? Because I was, I thought it was kind of crappy, the first movie. Between the art direction that felt like it wasn't quite finished. And in fact, they were trying to sort of ape the style of the actual cartoons Mm -hmm. that had been done for the New Yorker in the 40s and the 50s. And it just felt like they were still about two and three weeks out from nailing the design. And it's like, I'm sorry, the movie has to be released. Yeah. And it's just, I'm kind of hopeful that we're kind of in a Star Trek, the motion picture, Wrath of Khan situation where you make the first one and you go, hey, <laughs> but the, then the second one's good because, you know, <laughs> you, you've learned like, everything we shouldn't do. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, so that's my hope for Adam's family too. Yeah. Although, that, you know, I, I am of the belief that there's no way of topping Adam's family values, which I think is one of the best movies of the nineties. And it's just so funny and so Mm. sharp and what a movie, what a movie. So I would have, you know, I would have gotten Joan Cusack back to play that character in this movie. Is that the one with the Nathan Lane cameo? Yes. Okay, because again, that has honestly one of my favorite lines out of all of Hollywood history. Who moved the rock? Yeah. (laughs) Well, Raul Julia's speech in that scene too is so amazing. No, absolutely, absolutely. We lost him too soon. Yeah, we did. And Joan Cusack as Debbie is, I mean, is also... Yes. Oh, that is that yes. is an Oscar-worthy performance. If ever there should be a retroactive uh, Oscar, let's give it to, to, for her, for Debbie. Because, man, I, what a character. No, but, no, no, no. Yeah, did Great you see that? Up. There's there's some new there's some new blood too being added to this sequel. Well, we lost Wolf. Yes, because he's too old, and now the kid. There we go. I know that you and Nancy are probably not watching Utopia, the edgy teen drama on HBO, but there's a little kid in that um, named Javin Walton, and he's taking over the role as Pugsley, and then our friend Bill Hader is going to be in it as an all new character named Cyrus. So. Hmm. Okay. So far, well, no mention of Debbie, sadly, but... Um, okay. You know. We live in hope. We and then, hope. Uh, you know, Greg Tiernan is coming back, but Conrad Vernon, who was initially announced as, as returning as a director, is not. But mm-hmm. they are joined by two new co-directors, Laura Brousseau and Kevin Pavelock, and they hmm. are serving as co-directors alongside Tiernan. So everybody else is back. Charlize is back. Oscar Isaac's back. You know, the whole gang. Bette Midler, our favorite. Mm-hmm. But they sort of give a kind of wishy-washy plot, which I thought was sort of the problem of the first one, was that they were just they just did not have a good story. So I'm hoping mm-hmm. that gets a little bit more 
solid before next year, but hey, I'm still waiting for that stop motion Tim Burton version that they announced so many years ago. Since you are talking about stop motion, let us talk about the Cheeto Brothers news. This is Netflix, right? Yeah. I mean, I had forgotten that it was a Cheeto Brothers thing, but it was announced a few years ago. It's called Alien Xmas. It's like a little gray alien. I think it's based on a children's book. But it's finally coming out this year, which I'm so excited about. And if you know the Chiodo Brothers, you know that they are absolutely legends in stop motion and visual effects world, right? Absolutely. I mean, it's amazing when you look at their resumes how many projects they're involved in. But I I have to admit, when you were suggesting this for the show, I, I didn't know that they had done the stop motion puppets for Vincent. Yeah, I, I just happened to be rewatching it the other day because mm-hmm. obviously why am I not doing anything mm-hmm. of substance and re- rewatching <laughs> Vincent for the th- thousandth time. But yeah, they they designed the, the puppets for that and obviously went on to work w- with Burton on the Large Marge scene in Pee-wee's Big Adventure, which oh, is so yes, amazing. Yes, yes. I mean, if you don't know these guys, they are totally amazing and they've contributed to so many things like the stop motion scenes in Elf. Obviously, they worked with Favreau before on that, but mm-hmm. they also did Killer Clowns from Outer Space. They contributed <sighs> to the the puppets for Team America and Critters and, I mean, amazing guys. And I'm so glad that they're still working. I mean, they're all in their 60s at this point. And mm-hmm. um, so, yeah, 30-minute animated special coming this year. I'm I'm pumped. Very cool. Now... Let's talk about Wolfwalkers, which is showing up on Apple TV Plus starting on December 11th. Yeah, did you like that trailer? I have to admit I did. I mean, I, I know you had talked previously about the wolf vision. Yes. And I love Kells. I loved everything these guys have done previously because they go after these great different stories. You know, they're not going after public domain fairy tales. <laughs> you you get different stuff from these guys. Yeah. But the design on this one, oh my God. Yeah, it's really amazing. And it mm. is a really amazing emotional story it's not one of those movies where they sort of lay out the rules of the magic you know Mm -hmm. this this happens when this happens and Mm -hmm. so the characters are kind of discovering the magic for themselves and it's just wonderful it is really it's one of my favorite movies i've seen this year and it's just a testament to you know the cartoon saloon work ethic and their sort of commitment to innovation and this kind of closes out a trilogy that started with kells it continued with Mm -hmm. book of c and this this kind Mm -hmm. of closes out which when I talked to them, I said, did you guys run out of Irish folktales? And they said, no, of course not. We didn't. We've got plenty of folktales. Um, but yeah. Well, that's great. That's yeah. great. Now, speaking of innovative animation and an amazing design, I DVR'd the new episode of Primal, Gennady Tartakovsky's. <laughs> what do you think, Jim? Well, first of all, Fang lives. I'm happy. She you know, lives. She lives. As I was watching it and figuring, this might be a little tough for Drew to watch, given what happens to all of the jackals. But Yes. <laughs> they had it coming, though, Jim, did they well, not? Well, they did. I mean, but, but speaking of coming, that you, you saw the attraction for the episode that's dropping this week. With oh, the, yeah. I've, se- I've seen that episode already. And um, oh. it, is, it is the perfect. Halloween episode, but there's a uh, moment. There's a moment of real sweetness in it, and I want to talk about that for next episode. So you got to watch okay. it this week so we can we can talk about 
Okay, because okay. Argentinian osaurus, you know, supposedly the largest dinosaur that ever exists with rabies. I don't want that in the yard. Yeah, it's a it's a full on zombie apocalypse, Jim, and I mean that uh, in the best possible way. So enjoy wow. that. <laughs> well, because that's the thing. I needed a palate cleanser after. Primal, because again, it, it, Fang and Spear, what they go through before you know we get to the end of the episode is pretty tough. So I ended up, well, Nancy did this for me because I'm a, a technological idiot, but she cast to the television the latest episode of The Magic of Disney's Animal Kingdom. Mm-hmm. You've seen all of these at this point, yeah, right? Yeah, I've I've seen the whole season. Yeah, I, I mm-hmm. love it. Because as you know, mm-hmm. the last time I was at Animal Kingdom, I went backstage and... Um, Got to see the hyenas up close, and now I'm obsessed with them. And there's an episode oh. that's all about the hyenas, so get ready for okay. that one. But, yeah, while, while I was backstage, they were doing that thing that they show in one of the episodes where they mm. coax the crocodiles out of the water so that they can draw blood. I mean, it's fascinating how they're training these animals that are just insanely wild. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Are you enjoying the show? Totally. You know, the, it's such a, a lovely mix of great photography, amazing photography. I really am enjoying Josh Gad's narration on this one. It's like a warm sweater, a great wraparound for it. And Oh, by the yeah, way, hi, Ava. So. Oh, yes, we have to say hi to Ava. But yeah, I mm-hmm. love that it's it's not Imagineering focused very much. I mean, you'll no, see Joe pop no. in a couple of times and like, yeah. oh, we put a light in the tree. Great, guys. Great. Um, <laughs> but it's all about the kind of everyday you know, zoologists and, you know, zookeepers, animal keepers, and just kind of like hanging out and keeping these animals alive. I mean, it it really, it made me appreciate the park a lot more. I'll tell you that. Totally. In fact, the sweetest part of last night's episode is they were breeding wild boars. And at one point they're backstage with an ultrasound machine and the forecast members are, you know, peering into that screen where, you know, that's a snout, that's a foot to watch them tear up that they're actually going to get a piglet that they're going to have to be able to expand the species, keep, you know, keep it ongoing. And because that's the other thing they really do hammer on the conservation. Message, yeah. It, it's really nice. And a theme throughout the series is like, you know, the, the majesty of life. And mm. if you ever thought that you would ooh and ah about a baby stingray, because uh, I did not. Um, that will yeah. happen in a future episode. They talk about this baby stingray that is born at the Living Seas uh, Pavilion, and it is so cute, Jim. So, yeah. Good stuff. Good yeah. stuff. Okay. <laughs> We're going to switch from cute baby animals to scary stuff after this break. On a previous episode, we had Didier Guez come on the show, and he was talking about uh, his new book. Yes, uh, or the tail end of they uh, they drew what they want. The, the you can't volumes. keep up with that guy's new books, Jim, because he's got one out about every six months. But yeah, yeah. Well, well speaking of which, the latest copy, the Hyperion Historical Alliance. Their annual for 2020 just came out, and they actually have this in-depth piece about the Walt Disney World Preview Center, which uh, operated on property, I want to say, from January of 1970 through September. But it was when the park, when the resort was being built. And if you wanted to find out more about it, this is where you came. Uh, The building's still there today. What is it used for? 
I want to say it's the American Amateur Athletes Association headquarters. It's I mean, such it, a it's, cool building. I mean, I wish, I wish I could go back in time and visit, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Remember, Disney buys all the land in, in 1960s, so... All of these things had names previous to Disney coming to town. And it turns out, you know that waterway that Disney Springs is built around? Today, it's known as Lake Buena Vista. But back in the early 1960s, before Disney bought the property, it was known as Black Lake. It's just sort of like, oh, now, see, see, this time of year, I want to know that. Yes. I want to know about the monster lurching out and, you know, menacing people at the boathouse who are getting in the little aqua cars, you know, before. <laughs> right. Yeah. Where is the uh, detailed, imagineered backstory for the creature that emerges from Black Lake every every night to dine on tourists waiting in line for the boathouse, Jim? That's what there I want to know. Same thing here. Okay. The other thing, a couple of projects we've talked about, Didi uh, and himself did this article called Mickey's Revivals, and it walks you through... You know, for example, uh, Mickey's Christmas Carol, likewise, Runaway Brain, and uh, the most recent one that was done theatrically, uh, Get a Horse. But it turns out there were five or six Mickey projects that almost got made. And I know we've we've talked about Mickey's Columbus and the the Arabian Adventure, but DDA unearths info about things like Mickey and the Space Pirates, Swabies, Marshall Mickey, and I know this one. This one will <laughs> totally appeal you, Drew. It's Mickey Goes to Venice Beach. So Wow. Followed followed shortly by Mickey gets hooked on Percocet <laughs> and now lives at Venice Beach. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. On, on our last show, folks, uh, Drew and I promised that we would tell you about Disney Double Dare, which was a project that Dick Cook and Guillermo de Toro announced quite dramatically September of 2009 at the D23 Expo and for various reasons didn't go forward. But I, I feel like he, I need to give a little background here about Disney and horror and, and more to the point, how or why Disney couldn't really move into this space. And it's kind of a bizarre history. I mean, it actually, it goes all the way back through to Snow White. Did you ever get to see the 2001 two-DVD set they had as part of the extra features? They had a scene that actually got cut out of the theatrical release of Snow White. Did you ever get to see that? I'm sure I did. I mean, I I have a stack of Snow White releases, and I have never gotten rid of any of them because I know each one has different special features, but go ahead. Okay, so this is literally, it's a 34-second long scene. The queen now disguises the peddler woman. She's, She's over a cauldron, and she's making the sleeping death potion, and she pours various vials in and it bubbles. And at one point, three bubbles rise up out of the water. And as each of them, just before they burst, they form skulls. All right. So Snow White opens in Hollywood, December of 37. And its next big engagement before it goes into wide release in February is it plays at Radio City Music Hall in New York. And It was a smash hit. They were doing five shows a day. you got to remember, this is Radio City. So it's not just showing the movie. It's also a live theater show. And it's 6,199 seats. It's a massive venue. Can you imagine going to see a movie in the theater like that today? I hate to say it, but if there were ever a place I'd want to see Pete Doctor's Soul on a screen in a theater that big, on a screen that big? No, I'd love to see it there. But here's the thing, this 34-second long scene 
in Snow White. Literally, the management of Radio City reaches out to Walt Disney Studios. It's very early on in the five-week-long engagement in New York. And it's like, Mr. Disney, we'd like to cut the bubbling cauldron skull scene out of the movie. And it's like, that's a lot of effects work. We work really hard on that. And it's like, well, yeah, I know, but it's making the kids pee. And they'd have to clear the theater. They'd have to clean the theater out ahead of getting each of these five shows in every day. But it was just what was happening was that they were finding after each screening, there'd be a couple of dozen seats that were now damp because the little kids had seen the bubbling scene of the skulls. And evidently, I don't know how Radio City determined this, but it's like, that's the scene. That's the scene that makes them pee. So it's like they asked permission from Disney to Walt, you know, can we cut that scene? And Walt said yes. So the movie, when it goes to go into wide release in February, they actually also cut that scene out of the film when they're making the prints to send them out to the other theaters. And so for the next 68 years, this sits in the vault. When they were restoring the film for the DVD, they found it and they they included it as the extra features. But what I find fascinating, Drew, is that when they went to go put it on Blu-ray in 2009, the scene is now no longer anywhere. Really? Yeah. Only came out on the DVD, which arrived on store shelves October of 2001, but has since gone back into the vault. In fact, the only time you got to see it was Don Hahn and Dave Bossert used to do these evenings of Disney rarities at the Newport Beach Film Festival in, in the mid-2000s. And that was one of the only times they pulled it out, and you could watch it in a theater like those early audiences at Radio City did. But Disney, for some reason, was held to a different standard in regard to its films. It's like Disney just was not allowed to frighten people. And the other studios, the Universals, the Foxes, the Warners, they weren't, you know, it's like you can't make movies that frighten people. Whereas Disney, um, have you ever seen the Mickey Mouse short, The Mad Doctor? Yes. That came out January of 33. The United Kingdom banned that animated short from being shown in that country. And not only did the United Kingdom do this, Nazi Germany also banned the Mad Doctor, which this frightened Hitler. (laughs) (laughs) Don't show that. I can see it. (laughs) You know, as a direct result, because the fact that it was now banned in the UK and it was banned in Nazi Germany, this is one of only a handful of Disney shorts that never got its copyright renewed. Really? Um, yeah, it's it wound up in the public domain because it was just the notion of, oh, people hated that one. Let's not include it in the official inventory and, you know, don't send it out again. And and it, it slipped through the cracks. And again, it's, it's one of the only Mickeys that's in the public domain. But this actually began to chafe at Walt eventually that Ron Miller told the story about a Walt screening to kill a mockingbird at home in December of 62. So, you know, this is the Alan uh, Pecula. I'm getting the name right, right? Yes. Okay. So they're showing it at home, and the lights come up, and Walt turns around and says, that was a hell of a picture. That was the kind of a picture I wish we could make. But we can't. Just because, the, you know, the public's expectations when it came to Disney was, was always about family-friendly fare. That, right. You know, that this was the box. I mean, don't get me wrong. He reaped the rewards they were huge rewards from making this, you know, Disney specialization. But at the same time, there was a guy who wanted to do more. And even after Walt died, 
this still was an issue with Disney, that they were held to a different standard. Did you ever hear the story about when they, they went to re-release the live-action Treasure Island in, in 1975? No. The film had been made in 1950. It was the very first fully live-action film that Disney ever made. Some effect shots, some matte paintings, but no animation. And so now it's, it's time to bring it out for its 25th anniversary. But the thing is, in 1968, that's when the MPAA, the Motion Picture uh, what it? Association. Association of America. Yeah. Yeah. They set up the, the rating system. And so it was like it had never been rated before. So Disney sends them this film that had been in and out of theaters multiple times since 1950. And the MPAA comes back and says, Okay, due to pirate-related violence, and they particularly cited this scene from Treasure Island where Jim Hawkins is hiding up in the crow's nest and there's this murderous pirate with a dagger climbing up the rigging to get at him. And at the very last minute, Jim pulls a pistol and shoots this guy in the face at point-blank range. And there's this very brief shot of a pirate with a hole in the middle of his forehead before he falls off the mast. And it's just sort of like, uh, no, this is really violent, so we can't give you a G. We, we'll give you a PG. And Disney actually had announced, like the year previous, that the Walt Disney Company would never release a PG-rated movie. And so it's like, are you telling me a film we've had in the library that we've sent out into theaters multiple times is now PG? And it's like, yep. So they actually go back through, and they have multiple conversations with the MPAA, and they send them all sorts of different cuts of the film and they finally get a G-rated version but they have to it's it's not a 34 second cut it's a 9 minute long cut whoa so the film ends up going out into theaters at this point it's 86 minutes long and doesn't entirely make all that much sense all right jump ahead to 91 Michael Eisner is now in charge and there at this point multiple films have gone out under the Walt Disney Pictures banner as PG, so it's like, just restore the footage. So for the next VHS release, it's the full 96 minute long, everything since 1950. Downside is that the movie has been released twice on VHS in between that 1975 release and the 1991 release. So somewhere out there, there are thousands of copies of this incomprehensible take on, on treasure. You know, it's like, why did that guy disappear? Shut up. He, nobody shot anybody. Go away. <laughs> but again, all of this is rattling around in, in Ron Miller's head. The fact that, again, Disney's held to a different standard. You know, we have to do something about this. So this is why in February of 1984, this is why he launches Touchstone. So, you know, we now have a way for Disney to send out somewhat adult material, you know, that we could, in theory, now do to kill a mockingbird. In fact, Ron used as his justification that, you know, look, if you look at something like on Golden Pond with Catherine Hepburn and Henry Fonda, we could have made that movie. You know, I mean, mind you, there's a couple of swears in it, but that should have been a Disney movie. That should have right. gone out under us. So we jump ahead now to uh, the fall of 2007. And the Walt Disney Company is coming off of the release of the third Pirates movie at World's End. And to Dick Cook's thinking, and, and Dick had been made chairman of Disney Studios February of 2002, he felt that the, one of the real keys to the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise 
were the monsters, was the supernatural element, whether it was the the cursed pirates who became skeletons in the in the moonlight, or the the kraken with its giant maw full of teeth and hundreds of tentacles, or just Davy Jones. The way he could come and go as, as you know, like a ghost-like figure or his his crew of pirates that were weirdly merged with sea creatures. And don't get me wrong, it was, you know, smart to get Jerry Bruckheimer as the producer. It was brilliant to cook up Gore Verbinski as the director. And likewise, just the luck of Johnny Depp showing up at the lot that one day. And he showed up unannounced and he's there to pitch himself as the voice of a new Disney animated film because he and his daughter have been watching them at home and he, you know, she really enjoys them. And Dick on the fly as he's headed out of the office pitches him about Jack Sparrow in Pirates of the Caribbean. And it's just sort of like with swords. It's like, yeah, I'm in. So all of that was very smart on Cook's part. But at the same time, he was looking at the fact that it's like we did the sort of business we did there because we did a Disney film, a quality Disney film that had a really strong supernatural element. So Cook wanted to keep that going. You've heard the stories about the original script for The Lone Ranger, right? Yes, although I'm not sure how much of that is true, but go ahead, you can you can recount that. I read the script. There was like a 45-minute window where, do you remember when they do The Blacklist? Yes, of course. During that window of time when all those scripts became available, I actually got a hold of The Lone Ranger script and read the werewolf version. And remember, the Lone Ranger fires silver bullets. And in this version of the script that was actually written by Terry Russo and Ted Elliott, the, the guys who wrote Pirates, Butch Cavendish, the villain, you know, he's been the, the villain for the Lone Ranger forever, but also you, you know him from the, the Johnny Depp film. But he and his cohorts were terrifying everyone in the West and they were clearing the land for the railroad. Because they were werewolves. That, that's how they were doing it. They, that the moon would rise and they'd become these horrific creatures. And this is why the Lone Ranger was working with silver bullets. That's the only way to kill a werewolf. So Dick had that script in the works as the follow-up uh, to Pirates. Uh, it was going to be a reunion project for Gore and Johnny. He's looking for other people to bring over to Disney. And, and about this time, this is where... Guillermo de Toro comes on Dick's radar, and, and it, it's understandable. I mean, the original Hellboy was released in 2004. We got Pan's Labyrinth in 2006, and we were still a year or so out from uh, Hellboy 2, The Golden Army, being released to theaters. But from Dick's point of view, to look at Guillermo's resume, I mean, who's the perfect film editor to now invite to come over and work at Disney? I mean, he, he had a real skill when it came to dark fantasy films. He was comfortable working with franchisable properties. And then you add the fact that, you know, Pan's Labyrinth took home three Academy Awards, right? Yes. yes. Cinematography, art, makeup. So that's a wonderful combination. You know, the fact that Guy can make a profitable movie that's also taken seriously at award ceremony. I mean, that's when you're in the corner office of the studio, that's the sort of guy you want to work with. And then, of course, the real kicker here is that Guillermo was a huge Disney nut. I mean, I, I love that story about the haunted mansion room at his house that's actually wallpapered with real Haunted Mansion paper. Oh, yeah. Yeah, not that he went out and had another company print that purple and black paper with the eyes. Evidently, Guillermo found out that there was rolls of wallpaper left 
after they built the haunted mansion. And I don't, I don't, I actually, I don't want to know how we got a hold of the paper, but he got a hold of the real. I'm sure Lynn is interfacing with the same guys for his stuff. (laughs) So yeah, that is, that is probably, well, you you never saw the at home with monsters exhibit at LACMA. Did you No, I missed it by inches. I had gotten to see the Tim Burton uh, exhibit at the, the museum of modern art in New York. And it was just a question of, I needed it to be in L.A. at the right time and have enough time to get over there. And it just, uh, they even extended it, didn't they? Yeah, I, mean, I saw it. I went twice um, <sighs> because I was so obsessed. But um, he had so much amazing Disney stuff. Mm. I mean, it was not like a couple of pieces. It was like original Ivan Earl illustrations for for Sleeping Beauty. And it was all this stuff to the point where I was still at Disney at the time and I was working mm-hmm. with LACMA to mm-hmm. do a tour where we would go through with a video team and just oh. look at all the Disney stuff he had. That would have been killer. Yeah, so we didn't end up getting to do it, but that's mm-hmm. how much stuff there was. Mm-hmm. Uh, so much, there was so much Disney stuff there that was just crazy. I mean, it was it was a treasure trove and mm-hmm. that's one of my favorite exhibits I've ever seen or been to. It was just wonderful. And now, you know, the idea of going to a museum is utterly terrifying in this day and age. So mm. uh, it's sort of Guillermo del Toro-y in that fact now. But yeah, it was, it was really <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> okay. Well, no, again, it, it, it kind of broke my heart. I did not get to see that because again, people would just come back and rave. So picture this. It's 2007. Cook invites Del Toro to come over to the Disney lot and then literally proposes that Guillermo join forces with the Mouse House. But this isn't Dick Cook inviting Del Toro to come direct a single film for Disney. This is literally, he has something much more ambitious in mind, which we'll get to on the next show. Speaking of future shows, uh, folks, we're still trying to get that interview set up with the director of Animal Crackers. Uh, hopefully, maybe get that going next week or thereabouts. Sure. But Drew got to do something very, very cool for the 100th episode of Light the Fuse, uh, his Mission Impossible podcast. Who did you bring in for the guest again? We brought in Christopher McQuarrie, who's you know mm-hmm. written and directed the last two movies he wrote on mm-hmm. Ghost Protocol, and now he's writing and directing two more movies, which they're mm-hmm. in They're in Rome right now shooting a big car chase. Um, mm-hmm. So we had him on the show and we're just you know zooming along and then oh look uh simon Pegg wants to join the chat oh look <laughs> Haley atwell wants to join the chat and uh so it was very very fun it was um totally unexpected totally unrehearsed and um i think if you listen to it you can you can hear that but yeah so we're going to get Haley Atwell and Simon Pegg on the show. No, they're not. <laughs> no, th- th- nothing quite as top shelf and starstruck is, is all that. So, so what's going on this week over there? Well, this week we just had our first um, part with David Kep, who wrote Jurassic Park and everything. Oh, yeah. You, yeah. you really need to listen to it, Jim, because it is really, it's really awesome. He is a delight and he has some great stories. And so we have part two of him coming up next week. We're... Mm-hmm. We're working hard on our, our John Wick miniseries. Um, we talked to the production designer. We talked to the VFX guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is really going to be cool. So we're working on that. And then we got a really big name that I am hesitant to say, 
But animation fans will appreciate who we've got lined up for next week. He's um, he's someone who you have hummed his tunes uh, before, and he has a, an explicit connection to a couple of the Mission Impossible. So that's all. That's all I'll tease there. But yeah, mm, I think you know okay. who I'm talking about, Jim. But yeah, very cool. Holy yeah. Cow. Yeah. Oh. It was bad enough when you were just covering the Mission Impossible stuff, but now with the John Wick and just, and really the production designer. I mean, because yes. I, I love the hotel. Yeah, we talk about the, the how the hotel is different in Morocco and all this. He was really, really great. And um, yeah, I mean, Charles is having another baby, which mazel tov to him. But, you know, mm-hmm. when he's out, maybe it'll just be all John Wick. And, you know, he's raising this new child and we're uh, <laughs> obsessed with, uh, you know, headshots. So, you know, that'll be a nice kind of dichotomy, you know, the death and life. And, you know, I'm, I'm just I, that's what I think, Jim. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> Oh, right. Well, I don't think Hallmark makes a card for that, Drew. Maybe after this, they will. Maybe they will. Okay. Well, if you're not heading over to check out those two amazing podcasts, we got some stuff here, too. Uh, We got Disney Dish with uh, Len Testo. We got Universal Joint with Dustin Fuse. I'm going to be recording a a brand new uh, Looking at Lucasfilm with Dan Z in the coming week. Aaron Adams and I are going to be working on a new Marvel Us Disney. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Jim Hill Media and then Facebook at Jim Hill Media News. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon.